This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are going to talk about it all. Dr. Ann Colby is a consulting professor at Stanford University Center on Adolescence. Prior to her appointment at Stanford, she directed the Henry Murray Research Center at Harvard and was a senior scholar at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. She has authored and co-authored 11 books, including Rethinking Undergraduate Business Education, Liberal Learning for the Profession, which received the 2013 Frederick W. Ness Book Award. Dr. Colby's research has focused on moral development, purpose, and the ways in which education can foster excellence through disciplinary practices, each of which we discuss in this episode. Hi, everyone. I am with Ann Colby today, which is very exciting because she's been involved in a number of areas of research um, that I'm excited to learn about. And I, as always, kind of like to start off by hearing about researcher backgrounds. And so I'm curious how you became interested in development, psychology of human development in the first place and what led you to your your studies. Okay. Um, Well, I think... The most important influence on me uh, was during college and graduate school because uh, I, because of the time that I lived, uh, our country, the U.S., was very involved in the war in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and that was uh, because young men were being drafted at the time, it was very different than being in a war now. Mm. It really affected a whole group of young people one way or another. Um, And so I got really interested in the war, and I was very strongly opposed to it. I thought it was not, um, not only not wise on our part, but very unethical. And uh, so that started to be a really major preoccupation for me. Um, <clears throat> and I had, uh, I had majored in psychology. I didn't formally minor in philosophy, but I was always really interested in spiritual questions and moral questions and you know, so on, as well as psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got this personal interest in this kind of uh, societal moral issue. And so that all kind of started to emerge in college and really crystallized in graduate school. And I realized that I wanted to bring all that together into one uh, focus for my research, uh, in which then I was lucky enough there was a junior professor at Columbia where I was a graduate student who had worked in the field of moral development, and so I, uh, her name was Deanna Kuhn, oh, cool. and um, so that's how I ended up getting into the field, and that was just kind of, it, it, it just, I stayed pretty steady in it uh, okay. from then on. And where did you go after your time at Columbia? You went to Harvard, right? I went to Harvard. Uh, Larry Kohlberg was on my dissertation committee as an outside reader, and uh, he was somebody who knew my dissertation advisor, Deanna Kuhn, quite well. And so I had that connection to him. So I went up to Harvard to work with him on his research and um, in a kind of a team, a wonderful uh, team with a lot of camaraderie at the Center for Moral Development at Harvard. So that was about eight years, I think, I did that. How, um, how, long before that, had Lawrence Kohlberg kind of published his theory of moral development? That had been some years before he was on your committee, right? Yes, okay. yes. He was already uh, very well known. I mean, he his own research in the field of moral development started when he was a graduate student, and he did his dissertation on it, um, okay. and then uh, continued to follow up. It was unfortunately all boys, but continued to follow up 
that sample for many years. Um, and so Kohlberg was a huge influence on me. And uh, I was, it, it was also a big influence on me to be part of this real community that he built there at Harvard for people interested in this that included people who worked there and graduate students and graduate students in other departments. And it was, it was quite remarkable. And all, pretty much, really, a lot of those people are still in touch now and they're in their late 60s or 70s. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty remarkable to be able yeah. to pull a team like that together. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so Lawrence Kohlberg, I mean, he was clearly a pivotal figure in uh -huh. um, the scholarship of morality. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to people about working, when I talk to people about Lawrence Kohlberg's work now, everybody said, oh, well, I had this critique of him and this was clearly wrong because of X, Y, or Z. But at the time, surely he was widely accepted as ha as being on to something, right? Um, so could you, I guess, tell me a bit more accurately what it was like to be involved in collaborations with him and what the thinking at the time was as far as the role of moral reasoning in moral actions or behaviors or character development? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he... he uh... I think that some of the core contributions of his work are still absolutely as valid as they ever were. Okay. Um, and the primary thing uh, that he brought to the study of morality was that he took seriously how people thought about moral issues, that he thought that people trying to make sense of these issues, mm -hmm. thinking about them, trying to understand them better, um, starting as children, trying to understand what does it mean for something to be fair, or why is it important to be kind, or what does that mean? Um, it, the, the, that kind of thinking and its increasing uh, maturity as people uh, develop was really important in helping to ground and drive and influence their themselves as a moral being in various kinds of ways. Um, and it was very different from, so psychoanalytic theory had been pretty common before that. And in psychoanalytic theory, you're kind of driven by things that you're not even aware of <laughs> yourself. And of course, social psychologists agree with that in a very different way, which is that you're driven by things you aren't aware with, but they're things in the contingencies of the situation. Yeah. So I think both the very, you know, the contemporary versions of morality that had to do with situations driving the whole thing, and the whole other side of it, in a sense, you could say personality research, which I, I would put in some ways psychoanalytic theory in that, people being driven by unconscious mm -hmm. impulses and ir irrational factors and so on. In some ways, both of those uh, fail to grant uh, agency to the person mm -hmm. and to say, you know, you've got to take seriously what people are trying to accomplish in their morality. And they actually do have agency. That doesn't mean they're not subject to feelings that they don't understand or mm. situational contingencies and stuff. But it's not only that. And people have the capacity to take more agency the more they become aware of factors that they don't really believe in that maybe they do sometimes influence their judgment but shouldn't. Mm. And so he, he was much more respectful of mm. people in that sense, than any other theory was at the time. He took even children's thinking seriously in its own terms, and that had never been done before. And mm -hmm. that, to me, is still <clears throat> his legacy, because even now there's plenty of popular theories that don't take individuals and their understanding, their thinking, and their moral agency seriously. And so that's why I think that, that his theory is, is, is not in any way, shape, or form uh, obsolete. Uh, I think the particular stages that he identified and described uh, and that I worked with him on 
I think there are still uh, accurate descriptions of, of an aspect of morality. I think uh, what a lot of us have come to believe, pretty much everybody, I think, is that that's one dimension, that's one element, and it, it, you need to understand it in the context of a much more complicated picture of what's important uh, to people's moral psychology. So it, I don't think that that dimension has been shown to be false, but I think it's shown to be more partial than, eh, he was aware it was partial, but he thought it was the most important aspect. Um, and so uh, I just think, uh, you know, it's become, there's become a greater emphasis on, on put, placing it in a larger context. Mm. Um, and so it sounds like you're thinking that moral reasoning leaves more room for the role of agency than some of these intuitive models or theories, either by like psychoanalytics or more of the social intuitionist model that's more popular. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so <clears throat> during that time that you were working with him, was that how you were thinking about it as well? Were you thinking about his theory in terms of being more agentic than psychoanalytic theory? Or how was it that you became interested in moral reasoning in particular? Well, I think he was also one of the few people who was willing to go out on a limb and say there are better and worse forms of um, moral functioning. And he he was very, very... <clears throat> interested in moral philosophy. Um, he had everyone who worked at his lab reading moral philosophy. There was a very, very major uh, figure in the history of moral philosophy working at the same time at Harvard, John Rawls. Uh, and Larry was quite influenced by Rawls's work as well, uh, who wrote A Theory of Justice, his most famous book. Um, and I think uh, Larry was willing to say to make what people call normative claims. So he would say, uh, "We need to define stages of development in which the later stages are actually better ways mm-hmm. of thinking about morality than the lower stages." And what kind of claim is that? You know, basically that's a philosophical claim, and he knew that. Um, I think most other forms of moral psychology at the time and probably even now tend to be pretty relativistic. Mm -hmm. So people don't really want to go out on a limb and say this is actually better or more highly functional than this. And I felt like for my purposes, I was trying to say the way that people think about moral issues is not adequate. It's not good enough. and that's why the country and individuals and stuff get into so much trouble. Mm-hmm. And some ways of thinking about it are better, better underpinnings for functioning morally. And uh, I still believe that. And um, I, I think that was a big part of the appeal of it for me because I wanted to be able to say, that's, <laughs> that's why this country's in the shape it's in because... You know, people aren't thinking clearly about moral issues. I sadly, I wish I could say it's improved a lot since then. Um, not sure it has, but that's another whole topic. <laughs> it's interesting because this the the issue of normative versus relativistic ethics has come up a lot in this podcast series, way more than I anticipated that oh, it would. Huh. And almost everyone that I've spoken with has come out on the side of normativity. Hmm. Um, which also surprised me, yeah. but except it, with the exception being um, folks with the uh, moral foundations theory mm-hmm. saying, well, this is a, this is don't commit the naturalistic fallacy. This is descriptive, not normative. And um, I guess I, I have naively as a, as a young scholar, not realized that this normative versus descriptive debate has been going on for a long time. I kind of thought that the relativistic theories were more recent, but it sounds like they have a much further history than I oh, realized. Sure. Yeah. 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 So that that's just really 
cool. I, I didn't realize that. So what are some of the other theories that were more descriptive? It, would you consider psychoanalytic theory to have been descriptive as well? <laughs> well, I'm not a fan of psychoanalytic theory. I, I think it was not even very good descriptive, but um, I don't probably uh, want to irritate people that much. But uh, it, the truth is, I don't think, I think that's a theory that has not held up very well uh, under scrutiny. Um, and it's, it's, it has some pernicious impact, I think, uh, to, um, to use it as a way of understanding people. So, um, yeah, I, I think I was less, you know, when I got, when I first got into moral psychology, I got right into Kohlberg. Mm -hmm. So I think I, I was probably less, uh, influenced by any of the other. I mean, mm -hmm. he critiqued, he critiqued, uh, basically social psychology research on, uh, things like, honesty behavior and that sort of thing. Uh, I think he missed the boat on virtues. Uh, now I think everyone's become much more interested in virtues and the importance of virtues and how do you understand them in moral psychology mm -hmm. as well as philosophy. And that's something that I think because he was, he attributed the way he thought about virtues was more either uh, in a kind of personality psychology way or a social psychology way. Mm -hmm. He didn't, it wasn't uh, convinced by either of those, and he kind of threw out, in my view, the baby with the bath by suggesting that virtues aren't at all the right approach mm -hmm. to thinking about moral psychology. I didn't realize that he had suggested that. Um, like, in was that part and parcel with his theory or a whole separate endeavor that he... Well, published. he had this disparaging term, uh, bag of virtues. So he would say, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bag of virtues approach, by which he meant people could list off. And of course, you know, it, it, it's a huge undertaking even to say, well, what are the virtues or how many virtues and so on. But there was this famous research at the time by these people, Hart, Shorn, and May, which took children in experimental situations and basically showed that virtues like honesty, they mostly, the work I'm familiar with of theirs is, was about honesty and cheating. So it was easy experimental situations with cheating, which showed that people weren't very consistent mm -hmm. in different situations with different kinds of situational mm -hmm. contingencies and, uh, you know, temptations and so on, that people did not... Uh, have this kind of stable hmm. personality quality of being either honest or not honest. That And so I think, so his critique would be, you know, there, it, if you try to say the virtues are where it's at and it's all we need to know is how much somebody is virtuous on certain virtues that are con mm -hmm. considered important, um, you're not going to get anywhere because people aren't consistent in that regard. So the more important thing is how do they think about morality, and that'll get you more traction. I think that's what he was thinking. But I, I think there's been a lot more research on virtues, and the question of consistency in virtue is treated in a much more complex and sophisticated way now than it was then. And I think, uh, yeah, I think that was... A, sort of a blind alley he went down to, to <laughs> dump the whole virtues approach. <laughs> so returning back to your comments about <clears throat> how you were attracted to sort of the normativity of Kohlberg's work, um, is it is that normativity what led your interest into moral excellence as well? Yes, I, I it was. Uh, the idea that, you know, if you're going to claim that some... Uh, some approaches to moral life are be better than others. <laughs> yeah. You better at least be able to describe the ones that you think are good. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's that's how we got started on the the work that led to 
uh, some do care, um, our studies of moral exemplars. But Bill probably mentioned when you talked to him that um, there was a whole first phase to that, mm-hmm. and we didn't just pick people that we liked. Uh, it, it, because of the normativity issue, it, it had to be more than our personal opinion. So we really spent pretty much a whole year interviewing philosophers and theologians and uh, yeah. experts on, on morality uh, to figure out what does that even mean and how would you even choose people that represent uh, high levels of morality yeah. and moral commitment. So what was your takeaway from that year-long process? Did anything surprise you about how you go about identifying an exemplar? Well, um, we tried to pick people from all different political perspectives and different religious perspectives, including none. Um, And we were able to find some core uh, commonalities across them, which we tried to then pull out and use. Um, I think... What people often lose sight of in this is that we weren't trying to use these criteria to uh, make judgments in gray areas. Hmm. And so people often say, well, you know, how would you deal with this person or that person? We weren't trying to do that. We were trying to get some cases that mm, pretty much most people would agree were highly morally committed and Hmm. so on. I think it's it's interesting how hard that is in a way and how i'm not sure i'm not sure even doing that you can always get it right hmm. people are very complicated and it's it is hard to reduce them to sort of one dimension and even the people that we ended up calling moral exemplars weren't perfect by any stretch yeah. Um, could have been subject to quite a bit of criticism. So I think it's all pretty complicated, and you can't sum up a person very easily. So I guess I would that would be my sort of caveat on the whole thing, even though in a way we were trying to do that, uh, just so we could select some people to study. Yeah. Was there any exemplar that you were particularly surprised by or fascinated with? as you did these studies? Um, I don't know. I think they were all fascinating. They were all, because Bill and I did the interviews ourselves. Mm -hmm. There weren't that many um, for that study where we did interviews. Our later book, uh, Power of Ideals, was with historical exemplars, and we did not interview those people, of course. They weren't living. Um, And... um, I think every single one was just very inspiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that can be intimidating, I think, <laughs> for a lot of people. And there's been some research on that. Our former student uh, did some research on whether these sort of very high-level exemplars are the m- most uh, compelling to people or not. Um, but... Uh, yeah, they were they were they were all really impressive, and uh, I think one thing I I came away with was uh, the processes that we described by which they developed and the qualities that they had in common. You could quite easily apply that. You know, you could see a movie, for example, Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. Um, Schindler in the movie is just a textbook example of going through the same process that we call transformation of goals Mm. through social influence and the characteristics that he ended up with uh, and his commitment and all that. So uh, to me, that's that's kind of a good validation of it, that you can kind of just go out in the world and read about people or see a movie about them or meet them, and you can see how uh, it applies. You know, yeah. you, you hear the same things over and over. Yeah. So now this research on moral excellence was starting to take off around the same time that you were working at the Carnegie Foundation, right? No. Oh, uh, I was at, I, I stayed at Harvard, but I left uh, Larry Koberg's lab after mm-hmm. about eight years 
and became the director of a social science research center there that was also based at Harvard. Okay. Um, yeah, Radcliffe College, which was part of Harvard in a complicated way that I won't get into. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was a, a a research center that was interdisciplinary and it was subtitled a center for the study of lives. So especially interested in studying lives over time and human development, different aspects of human development and stuff. So uh, because that was pretty much an administrative, you know, research administration, mm. uh, raising money, developing projects, uh, mm. uh, supporting the center, uh, I didn't, I wasn't doing as much research at the time. So okay. that's why we developed this research study with the relatively small sample that led to some new care that I, I was able to keep my research going during that job, which I held okay. for quite a long time, maybe like 18 years. Okay. Wow. That is a long time. Yeah. And then after that, you <coughs> went to the Carnegie Foundation. After that, yeah, we moved to California and um, I left uh, the Murray Research Center and uh, got a job as a senior scholar at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, which was another amazing, incredible experience of uh, an intellectual community working together on things that were important uh, important to them. Yeah. Uh, so could you tell me a little bit about the foundation in general? What is sort of their vision or aim? What are they about? It's a little bit over 100 years old, um, 100 plus started by Andrew Carnegie. Uh, it really is about, uh, it, it, its history has focused mostly on higher education, although it's done some work in K-12 education. Mm -hmm. uh, but the real mission is about uh, teaching and learning, quality teaching and learning, mm -hmm. uh, and supporting that uh, wherever it is, and supporting teachers. It was... Uh, started it started the uh, TIAA CREF, it was uh, which is a famous uh, you know it's sort of the pension fund for teachers and faculty and so on. Uh, so it's been highly influential foundation. Um, so when I was there, I basically was working on moral and civic development in higher education. Did a couple of projects on that that each one led to a book, and then. Uh, about professional education and what does it mean to uh, educate people to be uh, highly ethical, highly effective uh, professionals in various fields and yeah. uh, what are some of the limitations of current professional education? How can those be improved? So Yeah, so it I seems like here. it was very much an applied approach to ethics in higher education. Yes, okay. and uh, the books that we did were very intentionally written for an audience of faculty and administrators in higher education mm -hmm. in order to have a real impact. And in fact, those books and some of the team members that I worked with there were very, very good at dissemination and uh, implementation such that the books were able to have uh, really very major impact on the fields uh, that they were intended to address. That's wonderful. Yeah. So what were, like, which one of, because you did, I think, like, five books there? Mm -hmm. Was it five books? Mm -hmm. um, what, what one of those books was sort of the most impactful, and what transformation did you see happen before and after the book's publication? Well, they, they, different ones had impact in different fields and ways, but uh, the one probably most relevant is the book that I did with uh, my colleague Tom Ehrlich and several other colleagues there, um, <clears throat> and that was uh, called Educating Citizens. It was about moral and civic education at the college level, mm. and we took some different kinds of higher education institution, tried to cover a range, and uh, describe the, the ways that uh, we, we chose, even though they were quite different from each other, they were all committed to some version of moral and civic education for their students. And so we tried to describe what they were doing, 
Mm -hmm. uh, and we try to do it in a way that would be really helpful for other institutions that wanted to strengthen their approach to those issues. And that book, uh, fortunately, that book got adopted by uh, an, an organization called the uh, American Association of State Colleges and Universities mm -hmm. as uh, sort of the central text for a national program that they were doing on moral and civic education, uh, which was called the American Democracy Project. And so uh, that project really took off nationally. And of course, many more students go to state colleges and universities uh, in this country than go to private universities, even though mm -hmm. some of us lose sight of that. Um, and so that was really a uh, high impact. And that, that program is still actually going on. And that uh, through that program, faculty at lots of different um, universities came together and developed curriculum and implementation plans and uh, were supported by the wonderful leadership of, um, of the uh, ASCU, uh, American State Colleges and Universities, uh, to strengthen their university's approach. So that, that one really had a lot of impact. Tom was very instrumental, Tom Ehrlich was very instrumental in uh, seeing that the work was uh, used uh, and used well and he's still uh, he's still working on uh, fundraising for that kind of work and uh, helping to implement it and so on a very committed person so what were the institutions that were doing a good job of like civic education what were they doing differently well um, they they all developed uh, campus cultures that influ were very much uh, made, uh, brought into the everyday consciousness of students, uh, mm -hmm. the moral and civic issues and values uh, and commitments of the institution and, and so on. And so we describe what are the elements of a culture. Uh, they could be things like uh, even physical characteristics of the campus that brought attention to, mm -hmm. to um, values and, and commitments. So uh, one example that I, I like is um, one of the schools that we looked at was a, a Native American college in uh, nor North Dakota. And m many of the buildings on their campus were designed around uh, Indian uh, sort of uh, traditional Indian values and sort of even the physical design of the campus cool. brought to, you know, brought to the focus of students those values and then various things were built into that. Similarly, we, we did a community college in Hawaii that built on the native Hawaiian uh, values in lots of different ways around the campus, not just the physical campus, but rituals that uh, they had as part of the school life there and various curricular elements and lots of different things that, that they um, drew on their the best of their native culture to bring that in. Um, so another thing was um, kind of stories and ideas that were central to the campus and that everyone knew that was part of the culture. So there was a women Catholic women's college in St. Paul, Minnesota, where... Um, the young women took a, everyone took the same course when they came in and the same course in their senior year that really established um, the expectations that they developed their values and their purpose and so on in college and make commitments. And they had a story about the founding nuns and sort of, in a sense, their courage in standing up to the sort of male a hierarchy of the church and mm -hmm. and um, the diff the challenges in the local community to establishing this women's college uh, and their you know their courage and their commitment and so on of these nuns and everybody everybody knew that founding story so that's another thing wow. you know founding stories that type of thing yeah yeah um, so what about some of your other projects with the Carnegie <coughs> Foundation um, the I think was the business book the the last book that you published with uh -huh. them, mm -hmm. and what were what was the aim of that book? Well, 
that book was basically about liberal education. And it was based on our recognition that uh, the great majority of students, college students in the United States, major in professional fields uh, or occupational, vocational fields, and that that's a trend and that it's a growing, you know, kind of growing thing. And not as many were majoring in arts and sciences disciplines. And we wanted to ask, what is lost by that? What is it that the liberal arts brings to students in a transformative way during their higher education that is at risk when students are uh, focused on a vocational major? And then, most importantly, how can vocational education at the college level integrate uh, what's the, the key features of liberal education so that those students don't miss out? Because we did not feel it was useful to just rail against it and say, you know, you shouldn't major in business as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. People are doing it. It's the biggest major in the country. So the question is how, what is it that they need to learn modes of thinking, not just content areas, but modes of thinking and relating uh, to the world uh, that they could miss out on unless the program is explicit in bringing these in. Yeah. And I won't go into what all those are, but one of them that I think is especially relevant is what we call the reflective exploration of self, which is is very close to something you might call purpose, um, which we've been working on now, um, which is thinking about in a very kind of explicit way in the context of courses, what does this course, what does what I'm learning in this course mean for me in my life, in my commitments, in my direction in life, and the meaning uh, that I'm looking for in my life, um, and to be more explicit about that, because um, it's rare in a way that a course, even philosophy courses don't. They're analytic, usually. They don't ask the question of what does this really mean to me or m my own commitments. And then, of course, we were interested in, you know, professionalism in business and being a, being a, a, um, an ethical and realizing the impact of what it means to be a leader in business mm -hmm. and the crucial impact that that has on the world and taking that seriously as something that's your responsibility to, to do well. Um, and so the professionalism of it, but that not just that, the whole um, larger issue of your life and what your commitments are and what your values are and what meaning you find in life and so on. So uh, how exactly do you do that? And we talked about that in, we took examples of places that, and courses and that were doing that well and then tried to describe them and explain how to teach for that in the classroom so that yeah. other people using the book would know how to do it. And this is, this book has been the basis, my, one of my co-authors, Bill Sullivan, has stayed very involved with that project mm -hmm. over the years and has stayed very involved with a consortium of business schools that's been created uh, out of it around the whole world. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's still ongoing, that consortium, yeah. uh, which tries to do this type of work. It seems to me that a lot of students enter college today just as the next step, like this is just what you do culturally. You go mm -hmm. to college after mm -hmm. you're in high school. Mm -hmm. um, how common was it for classes or students individually to self-reflect in that way? Well, it's not very common in uh, in coursework. Okay. Um, I think it's there's lots of um, places that you can be encouraged to that kind of reflection, I think it, it varies a lot uh, based on, you know, the students, the, the nature of the institution they go to, uh, and so on. That's something I think we will be able to look at in our current study of uh, the development of purpose during college. Um, but um, I guess I would say some. It's really variable, but not enough. So that's why you're trying to promote. Yeah. ways of doing that more. 
So in your process of working with the Carnegie Foundation and doing this applied work, did you notice any big disconnects between the world of theory and ethics and its application in the real world? Not just in terms of um, it not being directly applied, but also like maybe a reflection on where theories work or don't actually work. Philosophical theories, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, you know, that came up in the first book on moral and civic education, generally. And what became clear in that book from the observation, we did observations of classrooms and interviews with faculty and students and so on, was that in the field of moral philosophy, as in most philosophy, um, theories are taught as analytic frameworks, uh, and that that's that's sort of their job is to, in a sense, explain the data. Uh, the data being, uh, in a sense, the things that people agree that's wrong. Hmm. This is this is right or wrong, and so on. And you know, there are different philosophical theories for, in a sense, accounting for and predicting. Um, those uh, those areas of consensus or, or dissent. Um, and most teaching of moral philosophy, it, basically you teach what are the theories, mm-hmm. uh, utilitarianism of various sorts, deontology, virtue theory, and so on, yeah. and then critiques of the theories. What's wrong? How do these theories... Uh, collide with each other and critique each other and each claims to be better in certain ways than the others and they're all problematic in a sense. Uh, And they also tend to do what I think some philosophers call quandary ethics. Mm -hmm. So their favorite thing is to pick (laughs) impossible (laughs) moral problems and try to figure them out from the point of view of a theory or not. And I guess the claim then would be that your theory is better able to address these quandaries in ways that are satisfying. Um, This is not the best way to uh, help students develop their moral thinking about Hmm. life um, because most moral issues people are that play a role in their lives are not quandaries in that way. (laughs) And because you know, if you your takeaway is I can s- describe these theories and I can tell you what's wrong with all of them, how does that help you yeah. um, make your own decisions? I'm not saying it is important to know that. I think it is important. I think it teaches analytic thinking beautifully, uh, which is a crucial thing for people to be able to do. But I, it doesn't go far enough in helping students really learn how to um, make moral decisions in their lives. And for that, we, in in a later book, well, in that book, we describe some ways of teaching that are probably going to be more effective than that um, in moral philosophy. Uh, then in the business book, which was the last one we did there, um, we talked about... Uh, Practical reasoning, which is goes back to uh, uh, Aristotelian concept of paideia, and uh, tried to say how can education, this case business education, but also higher education in general, help students develop um, sound, wise, practical reasoning. And so that's uh, what we mean by that is how can they? They've been They've been in college for a while, let's say. They've learned a lot of stuff. But are they going to be well-prepared to draw on what they've learned mm-hmm. uh, to really use it um, and draw on it in a wise way that they're in a complicated situation with a lot of uh, uncertainty and, and so on? In any profession that will come up all the time, how do you use what you've learned and the thinking capacities you come up with 
to to be able to consistently make wise, well-grounded decisions in s- situations like that. Mm-hmm. So that that's where we ended up. And then we have a number of examples of efforts to teach for that and what they look like and, you know, what faculty can do if they want to try to foster that capacity. And that's in the business that book? That one or? we developed the most in the business book. Okay, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. We called it practical read practical reasoning or practical wisdom. So just as a teaser for people who are listening and who might want to go and read that book in full, um, some of the listeners are teachers of uh, moral development courses, and some might be teachers of ethics courses, just pure ethics courses, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Um, What would be your short kind of teaser recommendations for the listeners that they can follow up with in your business book? Well, I think two aspects of what we say you you can get from a, from the best versions of liberal arts. I mentioned the first one was reflective exploration of self, mm-hmm. and the second one is practical reasoning or practical wisdom. Um, and Philosophy, we, we observed a philosophy course at a very elite university called The Good Life. Mm. And now you'd think, that sounds like it's going to be helpful to you personally as a student developing, right? Yeah, I would. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was actually analytic philosophy, okay. uh, pure and simple, drawing on um, writing about specific substantive issues like animal rights or mm-hmm. whatever kind of relevant issues but taking a strictly analytic philosophy approach to it and that was a very revealing um, observation <laughs> of how you could in a course that you would think would be very amenable to this you could avoid it if yeah. you if you're not careful um, so instead well let me just say my general attitude toward how do you help students develop a certain thing is always the same answer, which is, what is that thing you're trying to get them to develop? What is it exactly? Try to describe it as thoroughly, concretely, and objectively as you can. Then how do you convey what that is to students in terms of what is this anyway? And then how do you give them practice in doing it mm-hmm. um, Sometimes it's so complicated you have to give them practice in parts of doing it and then putting them together. Mm -hmm. And then how do they get informative feedback on that practice such that they can move closer and closer to becoming an expert in that skill or capacity, whatever it is. And this is basically the expertise model. If you study... Uh, the development of expertise in any, you know, chess has mm-hmm. been a famous uh, example. This is, people write about the development of expertise. This is what you have to do. You have to make it clear what it is you're trying to become an expert in exactly. Mm-hmm. Practice it, get feedback, practice it again, get more feedback, and so on. So anything you're thinking about, like the capacity to um, make wise decisions in complicated, multifaceted contexts, you got to practice doing that and you got to understand mm-hmm. what constitutes expertise in that mm-hmm. particular area. So mm-hmm. that that's basically the bottom line for all of it. Yeah. So what are your thoughts about like service learning models? Is that kind of in conjunction, like if you're as an ethics professor wanting to teach your students or, or, uh, gosh, what's the right word, position them towards wanting to be empathic or giving, then you would assign service learning kind of assignments? And Could. That would, be one, that would be one approach. Um, service learning is, is well known for being um, effective under particular circumstances, hmm. and only then. So it's a question of quality. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, service learning, it has to actually be integrated into the rest of the learning mm-hmm. in the class. It has to be uh, experiences that are really um, well-suited to the kind of learning that you want 
mm. people to get out of it. They have to, there have to be uh, well-developed uh, uh, strategies for helping them reflect systematically mm. on what they've learned uh, and to kind of put it into practice beyond that. So there's a lot to service learning. It's not just, okay, have them do this volunteer work connected with the class. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think that's a, that's a pedagogy that can be very effective if it's done, if it's done well. Okay. Yeah. And so the self-reflection piece, you had mentioned that was somewhat related to purpose. Mm-hmm. Is that is that self-reflection finding what drove your interest in purpose? Or was that kind of coincidental? I think it was coincidental. I mean, I think purpose, in a way, um, Bill and I didn't use the purpose concept when we wrote about these morally committed people. But now that we're, we've, we've been working with that concept, a construct more, and of course, Bill's been much more of a leader in this than I have. Um, it it's obvious, looking back, that those are highly purposeful people, mm-hmm. and that isn't the way we talked about them mm-hmm. at the time. But it's very clear that they are, and so um, and I had done research previously on uh, the the meaning of paid work to people. That was Mm. just a sort of separate study that I did when I was still at Harvard. Um, And we separated out what kind of personal meaning does work have for people versus, we called it social responsibility meaning, um, and the elements of that and what difference that made and so on. And now I can see that that was a study of purpose and work where some people, they all found their work meaningful, but for some it was meaningful in a, a, a self-oriented way, and for some it was meaningful in a beyond-the-self way. Hmm. And so I guess I would say that my research on purpose had gone back pretty far um, before Bill wrote uh, Path to Purpose or anything. Hmm. but. I hadn't thought to use that term, and I think he's the one who really got that whole construct made explicit, and mm-hmm. you know that was a huge contribution, and now people are able to work with it yeah. uh, directly. So, yeah. And then your most recent projects with purpose, um, there's the Mellon Project. I know that's in development, looking at purpose and um, liberal arts education, how liberal arts education develops purpose. But you've also recently finished or are finishing up the Encore project. What is the Encore project? Well, that that we did finish. Um, that was a study, I should just say as background to this, um, I'm a lifespan developmental psychology psychologist, and I, I my um, commitment to that is based on the idea that a phenomenon looked at across different stages of life, uh, like moral understanding or purpose, uh, is a, for many questions, not all, is a better way of approaching development than by focusing on a time period like adolescence or early childhood or old age. Mm-hmm. I think there's a very important place for research that focuses on those eras in life uh, per se, Mm -hmm. Uh, but that was never my interest. And so I wanted to look at a particular phenomenon and how it developed over time. So that's background to say on the purpose idea. Nobody had really studied purpose in older people. People between, in a sense, beyond midlife. Um, And uh, this organization that Bill and I are both huge fans of, which is called Encore.org, which was founded by a very uh, wonderful man, a moral exemplar himself, uh, Mark Friedman, we had always wanted to do something together with them. Mm -hmm. That's an organization that tries to 
tell older people who are beyond midlife, you're not done yet. You still have a lot to contribute in the world. Um, you can make a huge difference on the things that you care about. And that's a great way to spend your time and energy, mm -hmm. um, not just after retirement, but certainly including during retirement, but also, you know, when you're working and so on. And so um, because of that, in collaboration, a wonderful collaboration with this organ, this nonprofit, Encore.org, we did a study, a national U.S. study of purpose in older people, and that was very fascinating. We uh, did surveys uh, and we did interviews on a subsample of over 100 people, and we did the interviews. I, I did a lot of those interviews myself, um, telephone interviews, and it was just remarkable to talk to these people from all different backgrounds, including people who were very, very poor uh, and were living in, you know, rural uh, south uh, and in a broken down trailer who were highly purposeful and were doing things uh, a whole range of different kinds of things that were meaningful to them that they were really committed to. Um, and so we found that a, a big minority of older people are highly purposeful, not the majority. Um, but there is a continuum there. And um, I think the majority uh, are concerned about uh contributing and what they have to contribute. They just haven't quite gone the whole way to being committed, you know, found something they're really committed to and acting on. Um, the people, like with purpose at other stages, the people who are purposeful benefit uh, tremendously themselves psychologically from it. Um, and of course, they, are, they're benef they benefit the world because of what they're doing. So was that project trying to get an idea of the scope of the degree of purpose that people yes. post midlife have, and then did you look at um, like types of purposes, like patterns, and what older people tend to commit themselves to? Well, uh, it, it, it was uh, a, a, an effort to to look at the prevalence. Yeah, it, we had a national sample, a survey sample of about twelve hundred people, and. Um, you know, prevalence is always a hard thing to be precise about. But, uh, yeah, we, we found that about 30, 31% uh, of the older adults in our study were purposeful. Um, we also just wanted to describe it. Like, right. what does this really look like? What are the themes that we're seeing in the interviews? And, uh, how do people get into it? And what, what are they, what's the range of topics and so on? And basically the range of topics is, everything you can think of. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And how does that compare with purpose and other stages of the life? Like, as you were saying, it's important to look at a broad brush kind of panoramic. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Is purpose that, that 31% that seems higher than other life stages? Yeah. And it's, it's a little bit tricky to compare, you know, if the mm -hmm. methods weren't, if the, if, if the different cohorts weren't part of the same study, study selected in the same way, and so on. So I, I'd be a little bit uh, careful <laughs> about that, but okay. I do think it's higher than, I mean, it's certainly higher than youth samples. Uh, I think uh, the younger adult samples I've seen have been in the 20s. Okay. So I do think uh, probably because it can take a while to develop um, these kinds of life commitments, um, I, I do think it's, it's, a, it's a bit higher, which is really nice. It's good news because I think, you know, there's a lot of ageism, uh, age discrimination these days. And I think there is an image of older people as kind of dropping out and just uh, enjoying their leisure time, traveling, you know, various things they may be interested in doing, you know, spending time with their grandchildren, which is all good and wonderful things to do. But, um, the idea that there's still a lot of them are still wanting to contribute something important to the world. I think that's gotten lost in the stereotypes. And so it's really important for us to see that. Um, but you know, it, it, I, we're doing this the study currently of college students. Um, 
I I can't say I'm personally uh, sure that uh, you should have your life purpose sorted out in college. Hmm. I think some of the building blocks, and I have written one paper on this already uh, for that study, though it doesn't report the findings, it's sort of more the intellectual background to the study. Um, I think people in college need to start putting the building blocks and capacities in place. And if they are committed to contributing, that's great. And if they they find a, something that uh, serves as a purposeful commitment for them, that's, that's wonderful. And um, probably as they move on from college in the first several years from that, it's important that they uh, really, I mean, it's very beneficial to them if they can organize their lives around purpose in some ways. But um, I, I'm cautious about saying people have to have that sorted out or it's sorted out in a way that won't change later uh, at a young age. I, I, I think it does change over time, especially the, the focus of it and the content of it. Yeah. I think that people can have anxiety about wanting purpose when they don't have clear-cut purpose, yeah. especially for younger adolescents, you know, for, for college students. I think that yeah. that's hard. And even just the pressure, I remember being an undergrad and having friends and we're approaching the deadline where you have to declare your major and it becomes <laughs> this big existential crisis, you know, <laughs> of not knowing what to do. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think People can relax a little bit. I mean, it's not set in stone. <laughs> People can change and change yeah. their focus and draw on many majors to do many different things in life. And right. um, yeah, so so um, just I want to ask you one last question. That's I guess maybe a little bit personal, but looking back on your career, you've done so many amazing things. You've been involved in a lot. What have you personally found to be the most meaningful work that you've immersed yourself in? Well, um, I would say basically uh, the whole field and having <laughs> having gotten into this at age, well, I'd say 20, my early 20s, and this is 50 years later now, um, staying in the same field, um, not because I thought it's a good idea to stay in the same field, but just because the field was forever changing and new and wonderful things to be involved with in it. I feel very lucky with that because it's ended up that I am now, after all this time, part of a, a quite large international community of people who know each other, um, who read each other's work, who get together fairly often. And uh, I feel like we really do constitute a community. Um, and uh, these people are all, all literally all over the world. Um, and uh, so, so that, to me, has been the most satisfying thing, is to be in a field where you can, you can see the evolution of the field, you can see the evolution of different ideas and topics within the field, uh, that you build relationships with people, and uh, you maintain those relationships over time. And that, that I feel extremely lucky that I, I blundered into that at an early age. And it's been, it's been really great. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. And it sounds like you were able to get into those two research labs that had such a constructive working relationship in them in the first place. Yeah. Was that, do you think, by luck or were you? Was there an indicator that you were going to be entering a lab that had those good relationships? Like, would you give anybody advice based no, on your experience? No, no. My advice is don't try this at home. <laughs> I think it was luck. Okay. Uh, yeah, I just, I just was very, very lucky. I never uh, had a tenure track teaching job. I never had, in a sense, long term plan or long term job security. But uh, I just ended up. It, it went really, really well. So um, it's, it's hard to advise other people to do <laughs> <Right>. that. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Anne. Yeah, thank you.
questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Kruby by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org. Thank you.